The sermon text today is Genesis 25. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 34. And the New Testament reading is Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 17, a familiar passage. Thank you, kids, for coming up and for um, listening so carefully. At this time, we're going to uh, read God's holy word. Genesis 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, and all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let us also consider Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 17. Uh, the passage is familiar. Near to the end of it, you'll see why I have paired it up with the sermon text for today. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood." And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when He reproves you. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons." Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it this morning and our application of it to our lives as well. A theme that has been developing in the book of Genesis ever since the account of the fall of man into sin is that God will accomplish His purposes in the world, not through the strong and powerful, but through those who are weak. Put a little bit differently, God has determined to provide a way of salvation for fallen humanity. And this He would accomplish not through those people and institutions that seem strong and impressive from the point of view of the world, but in and through those that the world esteems as small and insignificant. God's established mode of operation is to use what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in His presence. This is His established mode of operation and was so from the fall of man into sin. Consider, for example, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was the firstborn, wasn't he? And according to the way of the world, he should have been the favored one. But God was pleased with the younger, Abel. When Cain rose up out of jealousy and pride and killed Abel, his brother, God rose up Seth to take his place so that the righteous line would be preserved through him. It wasn't the way of the world. It should have been Cain who was the favored one, but no, God had a different way. God used what was weak in the world to shame the strong. Consider Noah. He alone was righteous in his day, and he must have seemed so small and insignificant to the world around him. Imagine Noah with a great multitude of people living around him in sin, and here he is building a boat. He must have seemed very strange and odd to the world around him. He was warned by God of the impending watery judgment, and so there he built that ship. It probably took him a very long time. They mocked him, I'm sure. He seemed like a fool to them, I'm sure. But it was through him that the human race was preserved as well as the righteous line. God used what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. Abraham and Sarai were also unlikely candidates to be used of the Lord to fulfill His plans for redemption. They too were very small and insignificant when compared to the population around them. They lived in the midst of an idolatrous people. Sarai was barren, and yet God chose them as His conduit of blessing to the nations. Through them and through their offspring, the Savior would come into the world. 
God used what was low and despised in the world, even things that were not, to bring to nothing things that were. He chose two individuals, and the wife was barren. And through them, He would bring the Messiah into the world. And if we were to look a bit ahead in the story of redemption, we would notice that this theme continues. It would be through Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's twelve sons, that Israel would be preserved. Moses was to be put to death as an infant because he was a male born to the Hebrews while they were in bondage in Egypt, but God preserved him, raised him up, and used him despite his weakness to bring about a great act of deliverance that we now call the Exodus. King David, he was the youngest of his brothers, and he, unlike Saul, was small in stature. He didn't look like a king. He wasn't powerful. And yet he was chosen by the Lord to serve as king of Israel. And finally, we should think of Jesus the Christ himself. Think of what he looked like to the world. He was born to poor and insignificant parents. He lived a very common life. In fact, his life was marked by trial and tribulation. And when it came time for him to die... He died in a most inglorious way. Of course, I am speaking here of Christ as He seemed to the world. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we, we as human beings, esteemed Him not. I think it is very important that we recognize this paradigm. This is God's way. When God carries out His purposes concerning the salvation of sinners, His mode of operation is to do so in and through the weak and the lowly, at least those who seem to be weak and lowly by the world's standards. And this is to show that it is He who is at work. This is to show that what He does, He does by His grace and not because of something deserving within the creature. There is a reason why God chooses to operate in this way, it is so that He might be magnified. It's so that our eyes might be directed to Him, so that He might receive glory, honor, and praise, and not the creature. The very same thing is true in the New Covenant era, and this is why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, saying, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, etc. Paul takes this principle that he sees or observes in, in the Holy Scriptures from the fall of man into sin, and he says the same is true in this new covenant era. This is still God's mode of operation He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Indeed, this exhortation stands true, therefore. Let the one who boasts, boast in whom? Boast in the Lord. Let our boasting be in the Lord. This theme is clearly at the heart of the story of Jacob and Esau, which we are beginning to consider today. What we will discover as we consider this story is that neither of these men were paradigms of virtue who were worthy in and of themselves to serve as conduits of God's grace to the world. Neither of them were. Esau was a man driven by fleshly passion. Jacob was crafty and cunning and not in a good way. 
But the Lord, by His grace, determined to fulfill His redemptive purposes through Jacob, who was the most unlikely of the two, as it is written, the older shall serve the younger. So I want to begin by considering the story of the birth of Esau and Jacob. And as we do, we're going to learn that these twins were born to Rebekah, who was once barren. This theme of barrenness keeps coming up, doesn't it? She's a barren woman, and yet the Lord gives her twins. In verse 19, we read, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Now these words, these are the generations of, should sound familiar to you by now. Uh, they indicate that we are entering into a new section of the book of Genesis. Remember that after the prologue or introduction to the book of Genesis, which runs from 1-1 through to the end of 2-3, uh, the book of Genesis is divided into ten parts. These are family histories. After the family history of Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son, uh, we now are to consider the family history of Isaac. Remember how brief that family history of Ishmael was. It was just a brief, succinct genealogy. Only a few verses devoted to it. Not like the genealogy of Terah. Remember, that ran from 1127 all the way to 2511. Chapters were devoted to Abraham's father's genealogy. And also, it is not like the genealogy of Isaac, the family history of Isaac, for uh, we will consider his family history from 2519 all the way through to the end of chapter 35. So much is devoted uh, to the family history of Isaac. And the thing to notice is that Genesis is highlighting the righteous and chosen line through whom Israel and ultimately the Christ would come and it is also minimizing the non-elect lines. They are acknowledged, but they are minimized. So the purpose or the point of the book of Genesis is to reveal our origins. The origin of the heavens and the earth, the origin of men and angels, the origin of sin, and the origin of our redemption in Christ Jesus. This book, Genesis, is all about beginnings, and one of the things that it describes is the beginning of, or the origin of, our redemption in Christ Jesus. Here we see the family histories of the righteous line magnified in this book. Again, verse 19 reads, These are the generations of Isaac. And there we learn that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And so it would be through Isaac and not Ishmael, that the promises of God concerning salvation for the nations would be fulfilled. In verse 21 we read, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. It is important to remember that Sarah, Isaac's mother, was barren. She struggled with her barrenness for many years. It wasn't until she was at the age of 90 that she conceived and bore a son to Abraham. Truly, that was miraculous. A great attention was drawn to Sarah, Sarah's barrenness in the Abraham story. A lot was said about it. In fact, we know that Abraham and Sarah struggled greatly because of Sarah's barrenness. They sometimes stumbled and were tripped up in their faith because of Sarah's barrenness. But here we learn that Rebekah was also barren. And in verse 26, we actually hear that her barrenness lasted for 20 years. It's a long time for a husband and wife to, 
to deal with this problem, especially when they too had received a promise from the Lord that through them the nations would be blessed and through their offspring. Notice that Moses does not give us the details about Rebekah's barrenness in the way that he did Sarah's barrenness. But I think we are to assume that those were difficult years for them too. And that Isaac and Rebekah probably struggled to believe that God would keep His promises just as Abraham and Sarah struggled with their barrenness. I think a question that we should ask is, why the barrenness? Why is this a thing? Why is this a theme? Why did God ordain that the patriarchs marry women who were unable to bear children? Why, why did the Lord ordain that it be this way? Certainly the Lord could have had them marry women with fruitful wombs. And certainly the Lord could have overturned their barren condition much sooner than He did. Why did He allow them uh, to struggle with this and to linger in their barrenness? Take special note of this. The Lord's will was that Sarah remained barren until she was 90. That was His will. And He also left Rebekah in her barren condition for 20 years following her marriage to Isaac. Why did the Lord choose to do things this way? We should begin by admitting that the plans and purposes of God are oftentimes mysterious to us. You would agree with that, wouldn't you? When we ask questions like, why did God allow this or that to happen? The answer is often we don't know for sure. God has clearly revealed many things to us in His Word, but there are some things that are just simply going to remain a mystery uh, until perhaps we see the Lord face to face and He re reveals these things to us specifically and makes them clear. There's much that's mysterious about our lives and God's will for us, His secret and hidden will for us. But in this instance, I believe it is safe to say that we do know something of His purpose for the barrenness of Sarah and Rebekah. Though the Scriptures don't say it explicitly, it's, it's fairly easy for us to look back upon the narratives here and to understand what the Lord was doing. On a personal level, I'm sure that the trial of barrenness was a test to their faith. We know this was the case for Sarah and Abraham, and I think it is safe to assume that the same was true for Isaac and Rebekah. Their faith was tested as they awaited the fulfillment of the promises of God concerning offspring. God gave them His word, through you the nations will be blessed, your, your, your offspring will be as the sand of the seashore, the stars of heaven, the dust of the earth. These wonderful promises were given, and yet barrenness. Surely, on a personal level, this tested their faith. And when I say that their faith was tested. I mean that it was in time strengthened by the testing. These couples were drawn into a closer dependence upon God as they waited long for their promised offspring. But it seems that the barrenness of Sarah and Rebekah were also permitted by God in order to send a message to those who would look in upon their stories. They were barren, in other words, so that their barrenness might in due time, be overcome by God. They were barren so that the power of God might be put on display as He overcame their weakness. Isn't this the same thing that Christ said to that man who was lame, whom He healed? Your, your, your ailment was for a purpose. It was so that the power of God might be displayed in you in this moment. And so, I think that's going on here in the narrative. Here they are barren. Uh, certainly God could have done otherwise, but He 
ordained it so that their faith might be strengthened and so that the power of God might be put on display through their weakness. When Sarah gave birth to Isaac after being barren till the age of 90, it was abundantly clear that it was the Lord who was at work. I'm sure everyone saw that clearly, as we do to this very day, as we look back upon her story. Humanly speaking, it was impossible for her to conceive. And yet the Lord visited her and enabled her to conceive so that His promises might be fulfilled. And the same was true of Rebekah. After 20 years of barrenness in the marriage relationship, what happened? Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. This was to show, I think, among other things, that it was indeed the Lord who was at work. I wonder how many times Isaac prayed to the Lord concerning Rebekah's barrenness. You almost get the impression that this was the first time that he did it. I kind of doubt that. I imagine that he prayed in year one, and year two, and year three, and four, and five, and on and on. But what do we learn here as a bit of a side note? God is sovereign. He permitted the barrenness of Rebekah. And of course, it was His will that she have a child. That was already promised. Through them, the nations of the earth would be blessed through their offspring. It was all ordained of the Lord. And yet we see that, in a very real sense, the Lord still worked through the prayers of Isaac. He prayed, and in response to that prayer, the Lord granted his request, and his wife conceived. I think it is important for us to notice this, brothers and sisters. Uh, sometimes we struggle to understand how the sovereignty of God and our responsibility uh, interact with one another. And I will admit, and I have before, and I will continue to admit this, it's mysterious to me. I can't explain it all. But one thing I do know for sure, in the pages of Holy Scripture, we have this. God ordains things. God promises things. He is sovereign over things. He will accomplish His purposes. Yet at the same time, He works through the free actions of His creatures. He works through means. And one of the means that He works through is our prayers. So that if we expect the Lord to work, if we want Him to work in a particular way, we had better be praying that He work. For this is His way. He accomplishes His purposes through means. Notice that this is the purpose of miracles, to demonstrate that it is God who is at work. When Christ made the lame to walk and the blind to see, it was to show that He was from God. It was for that purpose. When the apostles had the ability to heal the sick, it was a validation of their authority. They were uniquely sent from the Lord, and their miracle workings testified to this. Miracles were signs indicating that it was God who was at work in and through His people. And such was the case with Sarah and Rebekah. They were barren, but the Lord gave them offspring in fulfillment to His promises. And this demonstrated that it was the work of the Lord. There is some application for us to make here, brothers and sisters. In some respects, you and I are not at all like Sarah and Rebekah. You understand that, don't you? They had a very special role to play in the outworking of God's plan of salvation. Through them, the nation of Israel and ultimately the Christ would come into the world. And so in some respects, we are not like them, for we do not have the promises of God that they had. Promises were given specifically to them, concerning them. But in other respects, we are very much like them. We, like they, know what it is to experience difficulty in this life and to ask the question, Why, Lord? Why? 
I'm sure Sarah asked that question. Why, Lord? Why the barrenness? I'm sure Abraham asked it. I'm sure Rebecca asked it. And so did Isaac. Why, Lord? Why the barrenness? Why have you ordained that this thing happen? Or why have you permitted this suffering? For we are suffering, Lord. They knew what it was to ask questions like this. And so do we. And while many of our questions will likely go unanswered in this life, one thing we can know for sure, if we belong to God through faith in Christ, our suffering, whatever form it may take, is not for nothing. For one, it will be for God's glory in the end. Concerning uh, some suffering, we don't know exactly what it was. Paul once wrote, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He was suffering with some sort of ailment. And he pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave him. But what did the Lord say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul was content to receive that word from the Lord. And he said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here is Paul asking that question, Why, Lord? Uh, Lord, would you please take it from me? The Lord said, No. You're going to continue to endure the hardship. You're going to continue to suffer. It is my will for you. I think many Christians would walk away dejected with their head hung low and complaining against God and grumbling about His will for them, His secret will and hidden will for them. But Paul takes the proper approach. He says, it's fine by me. It's fine by me. I'm happy about this. I prayed for it. It was my desire. I have my answer. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Uh, he, he realized that because of this weakness, he was being drawn into a closer dependence upon the Lord, and also the Lord was being glorified in it. His power was being put on display for others to see as he went on trusting in the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty. God is glorified when we rely upon Him in the midst of hardship and give Him thanks, even in the midst of difficulty. Two, we do know that the hardship, whatever form it takes, will be ultimately for our good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. That's Paul, Romans 8.28. He says, we know this. We know this. That for those who love God, for those who are in Christ, this is for you. As a follower of Christ, this is true for you and not necessarily for the world. But it is true for you that all things work together somehow for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. This is true of you. We know this because Paul said it. Paul knew it because it was demonstrated and put on display and stated in other places in Holy Scripture. This is God's way. This is God's mode of operation to allow His beloved people to sometimes struggle. But it is for their good ultimately. And this is why James says that we are to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. We are to let steadfastness have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials and tribulations are not naturally pleasant and joyful. James understood that. 
But the one who is in Christ is able to step back from the trials and tribulations of life, and he is able to consider them with eyes of faith and in light of what God has revealed to us in his word. We have that ability in Christ Jesus. We must do it. We ought to do it, and we must. We must step back from the trials and tribulations of life, and we must view them through the lenses that God has given to us in Holy Scripture. And we must view that trial, view that tribulation according to His truth, that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purposes. All things work together for good for, for them. And having viewed the trial from God's point of view, the Christ follower is able then to count it joy. Do you hear the language that's being used by James there? He does not say that trials and tribulations are joyful, naturally and in and of themselves. But the Christ follower is able to count it joy or consider it joy, having viewed the thing from God's point of view as He has revealed it in the Holy Scriptures. We know that God will use the trial for His glory and for our good. These twins, Esau and Jacob, were born to Rebekah, who was once barren. But the barrenness was for a purpose. She and Isaac were tested and strengthened in the waiting, and the power of God was certainly put on display as He demonstrated that He is able to bring life from death, something out of nothing. That was demonstrated in the life of Isaac and Rebekah in the barrenness. Let us briefly consider now the description of the birth of these twins. Uh, for what is said of them here sets the stage for the rest of the story of Esau and Jacob. Uh, this sets the stage. This gives us an idea of the kind of people they will be. Uh, even what happened in their birth gives us an idea of the kind of people they will be on into adulthood. On into adulthood. And as we do, we will learn that the older of the two was predestined to serve the younger. In verse 22, we learn that the children struggled together within Rebekah. The word for struggled here is actually a very strong word. It means to break, to crush, or to oppress. And so she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? In other words, she felt that war raging within her. These, these twins were not friendly to one another within the womb, it seems, uh, the NET Bible translates this odd phrase a little bit differently, and I think it's more helpful, saying, But the children struggled inside her, and she, Rebecca, said, If it is going to be like this, I'm not sure I want to be pregnant. I think that's the idea in the Hebrew. She's going, What is going on with me? Either way, it is clear that the pregnancy was unusual. It was extremely uncomfortable for Rebecca. It felt as if there was a war raging within her womb. I'm sure, pregnant. well, I don't know it from experience, but pregnancy seems to be uncomfortable no matter what. I can only imagine being pregnant with twins. But these twins were unique. They fought with one another inside the womb. It was a very tumultuous, tumultuous experience for Rebecca. And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and when she did, she received this oracle. Verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so notice that this was determined before the children were even born. This thing concerning Esau and Jacob 
was determined before the children were even born. And as you know, Paul highlighted this fact as he presented his teaching on unconditional election. In other words, as he taught that God does in fact choose to save some and not others, and this not on the basis of what those people will do or be, he uses this passage that we are now considering today to illustrate his teaching. Listen carefully again to Romans 9, 6 through 16. I say again because I read it last week as well. Here is Paul. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, the scriptures say, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, Paul is here giving an interpretation, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. You understand what Paul is doing here. He's noting that Abraham had many descendants, but not all of them were elect of God. Some were of the righteous line, others were not. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, this little remark, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated, is a reference to Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, where the Lord speaks to Israel through the prophets, saying, I have loved you. And then the people reply back, But you say, How have you loved us? And here is the Lord's repl reply Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Here, uh, the Lord is saying to Israel, Can't you see that I have set my favor upon you? That you are my chosen people? Whereas Esau, who will later become Edom and the Edomites, are not. My favor is not set upon them, but I have given them over to themselves. By the way, when we hear about God hating, and even God loving, we are not to think of God hating and loving in the way that you and I do. We are given to passions. You understand that? Sometimes we hate and it is completely wrong that we do so. We have hatred and it is sinful in our heart. Uh, that is because we are sinful and fallen creatures and we're given to passions, to, to mood swings, to ups and downs. But with God, everything in Him is a perfection. And so when we hear that God loved Jacob, what it means is He set His favor upon Jacob. And when the scriptures say that He hated Esau, it means that He didn't set His favor upon Esau but left him in his sin. It's not as if God looked down upon Jacob and Esau and said, I like this one, but this one not so much. What we're going to learn in this passage is that neither of them were very good men. They both had significant flaws. This is about election. This is about God setting, willing to set His favor upon one, but not the other. The teaching is plain. God set His love upon Jacob and His disfavor upon Esau before Notice they were even born before they themselves had done any good or evil. In other words, they were predestined. And Paul anticipated the protests that would come from sinful men and women when he wrote in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
In other words, this is the thing that sinful men and women will say in response to this teaching on election. Isn't this wrong of God to set His favor upon one but not the other? That is unfair, sinful man says. And Paul anticipated that objection to his teaching. But Paul's reply is very strong to that hypothetical objection. He says, by no means, by no means. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, here is Paul's conclusion, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Don't you see that Paul, that, that God's election of Jacob over Esau had nothing to do with their exertion, with their doings, with their efforts, with their temperament, with their personality, with their merit? It had nothing to do with that. But it had everything to do with the will of God. He and His sovereign will determined to set His favor upon Jacob. But Esau he left in his sin. It is not equal, I will give you that, but it is fair. You want to know what fair would be, brothers and sisters? I've said this before, but I must say it again. Fair would be this, Jacob I have hated, Esau I have hated. You understand that? Both were sinners. That God would show favor to either one of them is astonishing. That God would set His love and His favor upon any of us is astonishing. Only a fallen and sinful creature who thinks much of themselves, right, could possibly say, well, that's not fair. Doesn't God owe us good? Doesn't He owe us His favor? Doesn't He owe us His, His love? After all, look at how lovely I am. I mean, my mother loves me. My grandmother thinks a lot about me. She, she seems to love me. Why shouldn't God? The answer is you violated His law in thought and word and deed. You're a transgressor. You're a child of wrath. You deserve His judgment, that He would set His favor, His love upon any of us, should cause us to be astonished. I would imagine that, uh, again, being pregnant with twins is always a bit uncomfortable. But Rebecca was especially uncomfortable because these twins were at war with one another, even in the womb. And this she learned, not by ultrasound, but by the word of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? I, how many mothers had that benefit of knowing what exactly was going on within their womb in those days? But she knew. She learned that this conflict, conflict would not come to end at birth either. These two would continue to have conflict. They would become two nations. One would be stronger than the other Strangely, and contrary to the way of the world, the older was destined to serve the younger. It's not the way it's supposed to be, according to the way of the world. This little prophecy concerning Jacob and Esau and the older serving the younger is very important to the rest of the story contained within Holy Scripture. The nation of Israel would come from Jacob, and the nation of Edom would come from Esau. And these two nations would be locked in perpetual conflict uh, with each other. In fact, I think Herod, who tried to put Christ to death at his birth, was an Edomite, if I'm not mistaken. The theme just runs throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. These two nations, throughout the Old Testament in particular, are locked in perpetual conflict. Notice that the twins wrestled with one another even in the moment of birth. Verse 24, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, and all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterwards, his brother Jacob came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when, she was, 
when she bore them. Esau was red in color and hairy. An interesting little um, piece of information here. And the color red will be important to the narrative that follows. Esau, the red one, will be driven by a craving for his brother's red soup. In the Hebrew it is just red, red, he calls it. And will sell his birthright for a bowl of it. And in due time he will become the people of Edom, which comes from the root word meaning red. They are the the reddish people. Uh, And so this theme of red continues on. But Jacob, though he is the second born, notice he is from the moment of birth a heel snatcher. He emerged from the womb second, but he was right on Esau's heels as if he were attempting to wrestle Esau from the firstborn position right up to the moment of birth. There they are wrestling together, uh, Jacob trying to take advantage of Esau and Esau trying to take advantage of Jacob. And as Esau begins to emerge from the womb first, there is Jacob clinging to his heel as if he is trying to take away the birthright from him even in that moment. He was a heel snatcher, a wrestler, a cunning and crafty fighter from the moment of birth onward. Verses 27 through 34 provide us with a glimpse of the twins in adulthood. We're not told of their childhood, but we skip ahead to their adulthood. Their character in adulthood is typified by the story that is told here. And I want to briefly consider the character of Esau. Consider his character, for it is put on display in this text. Notice that Esau is portrayed as a brutish man. One who, kind of like an animal, is driven by his appetites. So, Esau comes out red and hairy, kind of like an animal. And like an animal, he is a man who is driven by his appetites. He was the favorite of his father, for Isaac loved to eat of his game. Parents, it's never a good idea to show favoritism to any of your children. It always ends up bad. Uh, That is true in the scriptures as well. It ends up bad. The story that is told in verses 29 through 34 portrays Esau as a foolish man, who lacked self-control. His fleshly appetites, they went unchecked, and they drove him to do foolish things. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Seems a little extreme, doesn't it? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised or did not care about his birthright. In this story, we learn how it was that Jacob came to be heir over his older brother. This is how it actually happened. And how the prophecy given to Rebekah at the time of their birth or before their birth came to be fulfilled. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Notice also that though Esau was predestined to this, though he was predestined to this, he did in fact despise his birthright freely and from the heart. Do you see it? This was predetermined. And yet Esau in this moment freely and from the heart despised his birthright. What I am saying here is that predestination does not turn men into robots. Though it was predestined that Esau the elder would serve Jacob the younger, it was the free and willing choice of the boys that got them there. Esau was a fool. 
In that moment, he cared more about satisfying his physical hunger than for living as the firstborn heir of his father. Think about that for a moment. It would have been a wonderful privilege to be the firstborn and to inherit all of the father's possessions. But how much more so if you are the firstborn son of Abraham and Isaac? For what was contained within that heritage? What was contained within uh, that blessing except this? Through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, a great multitude will come. Ultimately, through you, the Christ will be brought into the world. This was more than about a physical inheritance, as was common amongst men in those days, the firstborn inheriting it all. But instead, this was about becoming the chosen and promised one, the one through whom God would accomplish His redemption. And Esau, though he knew that certainly, was more concerned about satisfying his hunger than for living as the firstborn heir of Isaac, his father. Brothers and sisters, I think there is application for us here too. We must learn from Esau and be sure to develop wisdom and self-control. To gain wisdom, we must give attention to God's Word. We must ingest it and believe it to the heart. And self-control is developed as we learn to obey the Lord day by day, little by little, in thought, word, and deed. We must learn to say no to the cravings of the flesh and yes to God's Word and to the promptings of His Spirit. I'm afraid that far too many who profess Christ are a lot like Esau. They think little of their inheritance in Christ Jesus. They are in fact driven by their appetites, their passions, their cravings, instead of by Christ, His Word, and His Spirit. And this is why Paul exhorts us saying, Christian, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is earthly in you needs to be put to death. For example, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, before Christ, he means. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You hear Paul's exhortation. He's saying, don't be that guy. Don't be the one who is driven and controlled by your fleshly appetites and passions. Put that stuff to death. Yes, your flesh wants you to do this or that sinful thing, but you're to learn in Christ Jesus to say no to it and to put on Christ instead. To be driven by His Word and by His Spirit. You're to be renewed. And this is why the writer to the Hebrews said, Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, And by it many have become defiled. And then he says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like who? This is how Paul interprets this passage we are considering today. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. What did Paul see in Esau except the very thing that we are noticing? He was a man driven by his passions. He sold his birthright for a single meal, Paul notices. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That will come out later in the narrative. 
And so, friends, though it is true that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, the Scriptures also exhort us to make our calling and election sure. The one who has true faith will turn from sin progressively and put to death the deeds of the flesh and will in fact grow in the knowledge and love of our Savior. We must not be driven by our appetites, brothers and sisters, but by Christ. This moment here was a watershed moment for Esau. By selling his birthright for a bowl of red, red soup, he showed that he cared more about satisfying his physical cravings than for being the one through whom the promises made to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac would be fulfilled. And because of this, he is called immoral and unholy, having sold his birthright for a single meal. We already know that Jacob would be the one to inherit the promises of God given to his father Isaac, for this was prophesied concerning him before his birth. But here we see clearly that this favor was shown to Jacob not because of some good within him, but by the free grace of God alone. Do you see it in the story? In other words, what I am saying is that Jacob doesn't come off much better than Esau in this narrative. Whereas Esau was man driven by his fleshly appetites, Jacob was a crafty and cunning heel snatcher even into adulthood. Jacob was rather ruthless towards his brother Esau in this episode. Don't you agree? He took advantage of his brother's hunger. He took advantage of his weakness. He capitalized upon his brutishness. Esau came in from the field and said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red red. Again, that is what it is in the Hebrew. For I am exhausted and Jacob could have in that moment shown kindness to his brother Esau, couldn't he? He could have said, here you go, brother. That would have been the right and godly thing to do. But he dealt treacherously with him. Sell me your birthright now, Jacob says. And when Esau said, I'm about to die, of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. And when Esau swore, this made the matter legal and binding. So he swore to him and sold his birthright technically and formally to Jacob. The narrative of Genesis will focus upon Jacob from this point all the way to the end of chapter 35, as I have said. And we will learn a lot about Jacob in those chapters. One thing will be clear. He too was a very flawed individual. Not only did he wrestle with his brother in the womb and in his early adulthood, but he also wrestled with God. He would remain a crafty, cunning, and deceptive heel snatcher for many years after this until the Lord would finally humble him. And what do we learn from this, brothers and sisters? This favor, this love that was set upon Jacob was not because of something good and meritorious within him, but it was by the free grace of God alone. Brothers and sisters, as we come now to a conclusion, the book of Genesis describes to us the beginnings of our redemption in Christ. And one thing is very clear, it is all by God's grace God showed unmerited favor to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He worked in and through them in such a way so as to prove that it was He who was at work. He brought life from barren wombs, and He chose that which was weak, according to the world, to shame the powerful. Jesus the Christ would not be born into the world for another 1900 years or so from the events that are recorded for us here. But when He was born, He came into the world in like manner. He was born... Not to a barren woman, but to a virgin. Even more astonishing. His parents were poor. He was utterly unimpressive according to the standards of the world. When he died, he died a brutal and humiliating death. But note this, on the third day he rose again. And so friends, I am urging all of us to learn from the Scriptures how it is that God works in the world. 
He works not through what seems powerful and wise, but through what might be considered weak and foolish by many. And let us not be ashamed to identify with those things. Let us not be ashamed to identify with Christ and His gospel, which the world calls foolish. Paul knew that this was a temptation to be ashamed of the foolishness of the gospel. And so he wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And so let us not be ashamed of this gospel message that promotes a very humble and unimpressive Christ, one who suffered, one who died, in order to gain the victory. And let us not be ashamed to identify with His church, though she might seem so very unimpressive to the world. Look around you. Is this an impressive gathering of people? I mean, I don't mean to be rude to you. I'm not trying to insult you personally. I'm just saying, we're a rather small group, aren't we? A very small group. The world would look in upon this. There's nothing there. There's no power there. There's nothing there to be impressed with. And yet, this is how the Lord is working in the world, through His, His little churches, His little church, you know, His bride. And throughout the history of the world, the church has suffered. The church has been persecuted. The church has been trampled upon by those who are powerful. And yet, it just continues on. The kingdom of God grows and spreads and will be established until the Lord comes again. And so let us not be ashamed to identify with this church, though she might be so very unimpressive to the world. And here are Paul's words, and with these we close. Therefore, do not be ashamed, Christian, of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Let us bow for prayer. Father, our prayer is that you would help us to see the world and our individual circumstances through the truth of your word. Lord, as we suffer and as we struggle, help us to see what you are doing in and through it. We might not know for sure what exactly you are doing. Much remains mysterious to us, but Lord, convince our minds and hearts that in fact all things do work together for good for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us never to forget it. And as we struggle, Lord, with trial and tribulation, help us to consider it joy, knowing that you are at work within us to perfect us. Help us to know that when you work in and through us in weakness, in trial and tribulation, as we endure it and as we give thanks to you through it, that you are most glorified. Father, help us to see the world through the lenses that you have given us, your most holy word. God, we pray that you would preserve us to the end, that we would never be ashamed of identifying with Christ. He is the Lamb of God who was slain for us, yet He is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. May we never be ashamed of Him, Lord, but cling to Him sincerely and truly to the end. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.